0: Bow your head with me and let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, you have said in your psalm that if your people would but listen to you and follow your ways, how quickly you would subdue their enemies and turn your hand against them. We have many enemies in this world, inside our nation and outside our nation, so we as your people do want to listen to you and follow your ways and ask your forgiveness for our land ask that you would heal this land of ours that we love so much. We know, Father, that in the swirls of life, in the chaos of life and the quick-flowing currents where sometimes the waves seem to just be crashing over our heads, help us to float calmly with the the tides ebb and flow, having a temperate spirit and a patient spirit, keeping our deepest instincts anchored in you, So that wherever the waves go, we go securely with you in our trust in you. We rejoice in Jesus, who is our anchor. We rejoice in the fact that He came that we might have life, eternal life, and that we might have this life even more abundantly. We love you. We just ask that your Spirit would have His will and way this morning, that um, that He would accomplish whatever He He wants in every heart here, Father. And we know your word does not return void, it is alive, it is powerful, it is just as alive today as when it was written, and we know that it pierces the hearts of man, because it is your word, and we thank you for that truth, Lord. Now just help your servant to speak quickly, clearly, may everything that is said or thought here give honor to your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. God, the king of the universe, had made conditional promises to his human kingdom subjects in his Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant had conditional promises. And he spelled that out very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you read that chapter this week, it's long, but it's succinctly stated it's this. If if he said to his people, if you will obey my commandments such as, Not putting any other gods before me and not making unto yourself any graven images, you will be blessed. However, on the other hand, if you do not obey me, there's a price to pay. You will be judged, you will be punished, you will be chastened. Well, what did Israel do? They did not obey. And consequently, they were chastened, they were judged. First of all, the northern kingdom, called Israel, was carried off by the Assyrians, the rod of God's anger. Secondly, almost 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off by God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonians. Manifesting his sovereignty, God needed to demonstrate that there are terrible consequences to rejecting and disobeying him. He needed to show Israel, and through her, he needed to show the world, that he means what he says. God means what he says. I hope you mean what you say to your children and your grandchildren. You know, if you draw a red line and they cross it, you you do what you said you were going to do when they cross that line. We need to keep our words. God keeps his word. Not only had the Jews of both kingdoms been very idolatrous, even Returning to the worship of golden calves. Can you imagine worshiping something that you yourself built? Amazing to me. I just, My mind can't wrap around that. Um, but they returned to the worship of golden calves. That was the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom even embraced the queen of heaven cult that had originated way back in Babel, Genesis chapter 11. Not only had they turned to idolatry, but they disobeyed the, the law of the sabbatic year. Similar, and that worked similarly to the way manna was. Manna that fell from heaven when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. <clears throat> Remember what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to collect a double portion on the sixth day. And when they did that, God promised that that portion would not rot or stink like it would on the other days. It would, it would keep it. Would keep. And it would be enough to carry them through the seventh day when no manna did fall on the ground for them to eat. Well, the year of the Sabbath was the same kind of principle. The Jewish people, it was a test. They were to put their faith, their trust, that God would provide a a plentiful harvest on the sixth year. Enough, you know, that would carry them through to the harvest on the eighth year. But they were to let the land rest on the seventh year. We should be obeying that rule yet today in America. We should be. We would probably have more (laughs) because that's the way God operates. But um, here's what God said through Moses would happen if they disobeyed and did not let the land rest every seventh year. He said this in Leviticus 25. If ye will not hearken unto me, if ye won't listen to me, and you will not do all these commandments, I will scatter you among the heathens. That was in the Pentateuch, you know, Moses, way, way long ago. And he said, I will draw out a sword after you, and your land will be desolate and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you be in your enemy's land. You know, if you won't obey that simple rule and let the land rest every six years, and I'll provide, I mean, every seventh year, I'll provide for you, you won't go hungry. Um, But if you won't obey that, then I'm just going to have to remove you from the land (laughs) until she gets her Sabbath rest. And, And yet what happened, even knowing God's law of the land, even knowing it, the Jewish leaders and the people devised their own agricultural program, ignoring his instructions. They thought they knew better than God. Whenever man thinks he knows better than God, watch out. His ways are higher than ours. It's trouble. Well, perhaps they thought, I don't know what their reasoning was, um, but perhaps they thought God had forgotten this one seemingly little insignificant particular of the law. Does God forget (laughs) His, his law, his word? No. Perhaps they persuaded themselves into thinking that it was more of a suggestion than a command. You think people do that today? With God's word, oh well, He's just suggesting this, you know, doesn't really mean it. Maybe it was just something rather benign that God didn't really care about that much, anyway. It is totally amazing. how capable man is, man, generically speaking, how capable he is when it comes to inventing all kinds of excuses and explanations and rationalizations for his disobedience. Isn't it? when you think about it? how they rationalize and deceive themselves into thinking, well, God doesn't really mean that, you know, that's just Paul's opinion. We don't have to do that. All kinds of things. But regardless of all the excuses men come up with and women, young people, there is a price to pay. Sin has wages to pay, and payday definitely comes. Sometimes later, sometimes sooner, but payday definitely comes to all. People can deceive themselves all they want into thinking that they can continue to live in sin and get away with it. You know, that God will look the other direction if God even exists in their minds. But a sweep of history tells us a completely different story, one that is going to be abundantly clear one day to everyone in the afterlife, when then it's too late. God says, Be not deceived. I am not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, speaking of land, (laughs) whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That is just a principle, just like gravity. That is a law of this universe. Whatever a man sows, he will reap one day. Their sin of not obeying the law of the land, had gone unpunished for some 500 years. So no wonder they thought, you know, it's no big deal. This is not important to God. Look at how long he's let us go. 500 years he had let that go. But his long-suffering, his patience, does not negate his justice. His justice will come sooner or later. The fact was, and still is, that God cares very much about every one of his laws, the big ones and the little ones. And he had been keeping track of all of Israel's transgressions. For 490 years, she had been violating the, the law of the land, the sabbatic law. And that meant how many years did she owe him of rest for her land? How many years? If she had been disobeying it for 490 years, she owed him 70. Why was the captivity 70 years long? That's exactly why. Well, another reason that God took Judah, the southern kingdom, captive by the hand of the Babylonians, besides demonstrating his sovereignty in keeping his conditional promises of the Mosaic law and the sabbatic law, another reason was to purge his people. We are purged more during times of tribulation and trials and fiery furnaces than any other time, right? That's when we get rid of all the dr- uh, chaff, dross. <laughs> and so when they were put into the fiery furnace of Babylon, two things happened. The Jews that were really just tares, you know, they weren't really believers. They, they grew further from God. While the true believers got closer to God. And isn't that what persecution does? Don't you think that's what's happening actually in our country today? Now that persecution of Christians is beginning to happen, people are getting off the fence. The tares are just, mm, you know, they're going with the flow. But the real Christians, we're getting stronger. I think that's why our Bible study attendance is growing. Seems to be in both, you know, Moore County and here. I think people are seeing and they're getting more serious about their faith. So persecution is always a good thing in the long run for the church. So in our history lesson of um, uh, Israel, we saw that for centuries, idolatry had been gaining great ground among the Jewish people. So the Lord put them in Babylon, the home place of all the idols with which they had been committing adultery. You like your idols so much, okay, I'll, I'll let you live with them. See how you like it. This was a city that was absolutely overflowing with idols. Remember I told you it was 14-mile square city, which is huge when you picture 14-mile square city. But it got pretty cluttered when you think about all the temples and altars to pagan gods that were in this city. They had 53 temples to the chief gods. They had 55 chapels for the god Marduk. And they had a great big huge one for him. They had a ziggurat in the middle of the city. They had 300 um, temples for earthly deities. Now, would you tell me what an earthly deity is? I'm not quite so sure. Um, he- I can picture a heavenly deity, but an earthly deity, that to me would be a demon, but they're all demons anyway. <laughs> 180 altars to Ishtar. Remember Ishtar? What was her original name? Simiramis, the wife of Nimrod. Her name has gotten changed. She's all over the world. With. Anyway, so 180 altars just to her. And then there were 180 altars for Nargal and Adad. Now, I didn't have a clue who those guys were. So I had my husband look it up. Nargal was the god of the underworld. Ooh, 180 altars to the god of the underworld? And Adad was the storm god. So I guess when there were storms, you prayed to Adad. And then, just in case they missed any gods or goddesses, they had 12 miscellaneous chapels <laughs> for gods. So it was a city steeped in idolatry. Just unbelievable to think about. You couldn't walk down the processional way without seeing temples to all these gods, and I'm sure they had statues everywhere and all all that goes on with the worship of. Can't you imagine the oppression for a Christian? I mean, a A believer in the true God, when you walked into that city, there would be such oppression because it was so demonic and it was so occultic. It was steeped in all kinds of occultic rituals and all of the immorality, you know, the prostitutes that go along with all that kind of stuff that accompanies heathenism. So in that city, the lessons that the Lord had been trying to teach them through his prophets and through all kinds of other ways that they never seemed to learn. But suddenly, in that city, the lessons were deeply impressed upon the Jews. Because ever since the captivity, way back, the Jewish people, although they have other sins, one sin that they have been freed from is the sin of idolatry as far as pagan idols are concerned. Now, an idol is anything that you put between you and the Lord. So they, you know, secular Jews put other things like, You know, we can do, too. You can put your children before you and the Lord. Um, But they have never, ever had the problem with worshiping idols as you see a statue, pagan idols. You know, God will sometimes chasten his people by giving them over to the evil sins that they so seem to love. He'll just saturate them with those sins. Okay, you love those sins so much, I'll just let you drown in them so that what you think you love you'll finally get to hate. That's part of the chastening process. You see, sin is only pleasant for how long? Only only pleasant. Sin is only pleasant for a season. But sooner or later, sin bites. And when it bites, it bites hard. I think a lot of us have learned that lesson. Well, After having presented a little background for why he was in Babylon to begin with, Daniel then proceeded to record how it was that he came to be in the service of the king of Babylon himself, how he came to be in the palace. Um, Now, as we mentioned in our last lesson, the first chapter of Daniel gives us Daniel's own personal history. And it begins with the information about his deportation from Jerusalem over to Babylon. This first section includes his own introductory prologue to his book, as well as some very interesting information that we're going to talk about this morning concerning the indoctrination program of the Babylonians. That is why I've called this lesson the Babylonian Brainwashing Academy. We have a lot of brainwashing academies in our land today. Well, the young boys that were taken captive into Babylon attended a brainwashing academy. They were, in, they were indoctrinated that at least was the attempt, and it worked with most of them to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian worldview. So but what we want to do, first of all, before we get to that indoctrination, is finish our look at the introduction. Daniel's introduction. We had looked last week at the critics' contention, verse 1, about the date, the conquering king, Nebuchadnezzar himself. Then the cultural contrast between the two major places, Babylon and Jerusalem. Now we want to look at the captives' qualities, the character qualities of the young boys who were taken captive in that first exile. So I'm going to review just a little bit in our reading. So start at verse 1, of chapter 1. And I'm going to read through verse 4. Okay? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. That was the year 605 BC. And the Lord, it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his god. And we said his god, his favorite god, was Marduk. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his god. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. All right, there were two precious commodities. There were two, we could call them vessels, two vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took with him to Babylon After that first invasion of Jerusalem, the first type of vessels, uh, some of them, were made of silver and gold. Some of the vessels he took with him were made of silver and gold, overlaid with lots of gold, very expensive vessels. But the more precious vessels, the far more valuable vessels that he took with him were made of flesh and bone. Taking vessels, well, first of all, we're going to talk about the gold and silver vessels, taking vessels from the temple of Israel's God, called Solomon's Temple, and putting them into the temple of his God, Marduk, was Nebuchadnezzar's way of demonstrating the superiority of his God over the God of the Israelites. That was his way of showing his God was superior. Apparently, the God of the Jews, who they called Jehovah, apparently he was too weak to even prevent his own house from being robbed. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had no idea whatsoever that he was God's servant. And he was actually doing something that God had very specifically told King Hezekiah some hundred years earlier would take place as judgment for his sin. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but just put that in the bank of your brain for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar's thinking was that as Judah would be paying tribute to him by way of heavy taxes and by way of her subjection to him, so also would the God of the Jews henceforth be paying tribute to his God, Marduk. Now, in each of the three exiles of the Jewish people to Babylon, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar, each time he went over there, he took additional vessels out of the house of God, the gold and silver vessels, and he also took additional flesh and bone vessels with him, because each time he took more people captive to Babylon. And then 70 years later, we find out that those vessels, the ones, silver and gold, that had been sanctified, set apart for the worship of God, Jehovah God, those were blasphemously desecrated by who? Belshazzar. Yeah, the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar during his foolishly decadent banquet, which was really an orgy. And as God had predicted... I mean, when that happened, he'd had it, but he'd also knew that this was the time. And uh, he put an end. That very night, the night of that foolish banquet, God put a sudden end to the whole Neo-Babylonian empire. It ended that very night. They were conquered that night by the Medo-Persians. Now, do you know how many vessels, silver and gold vessels, were taken from the house of God to Babylon? Anybody want to make a guess? Just want to guess, or do you know? Seventy? Well, that would be a good guess. 5,400. Now, how do we know that? We know that from Ezra. Ezra tells us how many vessels were returned from Babylon when they were allowed to go back after 70 years to Jerusalem. They carried back with them 5,400 vessels. That was a lot of gold and silver, wasn't it? But, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar took a <clears throat> another form of precious vessels, much more precious, And they were the ones that were made of flesh and bone bone and blood. He took a group of approximately 60 young teenage boys. Can you imagine this? He just plucked them, I mean, just took them right out of the influence from their families, from their culture. From their temple, their worship system, their God, everything that they had ever known. Young teenage boys just picked them up, plucked them out, and took them to his capital headquarters in Babylon in order to educate them and indoctrinate them, brainwash them into the Babylonian ways and culture. So they'd get a world view, you know. He wanted to immerse them in the knowledge of the pagan religions and the the customs and all their mythology and everything. And this was typical of what they would do back in that day. Eastern kings generally would place foreigners in their palaces in order to serve as ambassadors and interpreters and governors because their knowledge of their own culture and their own people would help the king in better understanding the people groups that he had conquered that made good sense. So these young men that Nebuchadnezzar took in that first exile, they were the, the cream of the crop of Judah and they would be useful to him one day after properly indoctrinated with the Babylonian world view, he would use those young guys in his administration over the Jews, his administration of Jewish affairs. Maybe one day he'd even send them back to rule over Judah for him once they were his loyal subjects. Alexander the Great of Greece adopted this very same policy of using the most promising youth in his growing empire to serve in his Greek government, regardless of their nationality. It was a benefit for for them to know the culture and the language and to help the king. All right, so another reason for placing captives in his court is that every time Nebuchadnezzar would look at the captives he had in his palace, it would remind him of his great successes. It was kind of an ego burst booster. Every time he'd look at those Jewish young boys, he'd you know, puff up his chest, and, well, I conquered the, I conquered Judah. And he'd look at Egyptian young boys, well, I conquered Egypt. And Assyrian young boys, I conquered Assyria. So that was another reason. His plan was to mold these youths, from his conquered nations into full-fledged Babylonian citizens who were loyal and dedicated servants to him and to his kingdom. And those who would prove to demonstrate particular leadership potential, they were to be given special training. Now in Daniel 1, 3, verse 3, we find that Nebuchadnezzar therefore instructed Ashpenaz. Who was the master of his eunuchs as to five requirements for selecting the Jewish captives eligible for the Babylonian brainwashing academy? It's like filling out their college. What do you call it when you apply to a college? Resume? Resume? Application, whatever. Filling it out, you know, here's the requirements for this special academy. And the requirements. When we look at them, they really help us to learn a lot more about Daniel. What kind of guy he was as a young boy. And the other guys, Ananiah, uh, (laughs) Ananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We find out more about these young men. First of all, they were to be youths. The Hebrew word there, it says children in verse 4. Um, so that makes you think that they're little guys, right? But the, the Hebrew word is Yeladim. Yeladim. I thought that sounds like yelling. <laughs> Yell, yelling at the children. Yeladim actually indicates youth from 13 to 17. So that's why we say they're teenagers. 13 to 17. Now that's a good age to indoctrinate some, someone. Because, you know, they're already educated to a certain amount. You don't have to start from the basics. But they're still moldable. Like our college, you know, that's when we sent them off, well, 13 high school and then 17, I started college at 17. But that's a good age to start molding, brainwashing. And so they were to be teenagers and they were to be of the royal family of Judah. It says, certain of the children or youth of Israel and of the king's seed and of princes. So they were to be royalty, nobility. Ironically, although this royalty thing may have been nebuchadnezzar's requirement it was actually a fulfillment of god's prophesied here we go again his prophesied punishment for sins that were committed by king hezekiah king hezekiah was a good king but even good kings make mistakes so we're going to talk about that again a little bit later um and then it says in verse 4, all right, so they're supposed to be between the ages 13, 17, they're to be of the royal seed of Judah. And it says they're to have no blemish. Now, that does not mean they couldn't have a pimple or two. <laughs> um, but it, it, in, the, in the Hebrew, the word for no blemish is mu'un. Mu'un, isn't that a funny word? And it means basically without physical defect of any you know, major sort. And they were supposed to be well-favored. Well-favored indicates that they were to be good-looking, handsome. Isn't that what the world looks for? Someone who's attractive. So they wanted them to have no defects and to be handsome in both body and face. They were also to be skillful in all wisdom, cunning and knowledge, understanding science. They were to be endowed with understanding. They were to be well-educated. No wonder he picked the royalty because they would have been better educated than most boys from uh, Judah. And they were to be informed. Now, understanding science doesn't doesn't mean what we would think, understanding science, that we would think today. It refers to having good judgment and keen insight and discernment. They were to be intelligent, young men. They were to be quick to learn. They needed to be sharp so that they could learn the the language and the literature of the Babylonians and be effective servants to the king. Also, it says in verse 4, they were to be able to stand in the king's palace. What does that mean? Well, they were to have poise. They weren't, you know, they were going to be standing before the king and his court, and they were to represent the king when the king would invite other people from other lands into his court. They represented the king, so they couldn't be there shaking with their knees, knocking together, you know, and stuttering. They had to have poise and a certain degree of self-confidence in order to do that. They um, should be highly presentable in their manners, and in their appearance, and in their decorum, because, as I said, they would represent their king. Also, they would have to be able to communicate well and have a dignified manner about them. So what's all this telling us about Daniel and his friends? Quite a bit. Now, I had a little fun with this, but here's, just listen to this. I'll put it in your notes. (laughs) They had to be cultured, cute, cunning, confident, King's kids. (laughs) These captives. Cultured, cute, cunning, confident king's kids. (laughs) I like that. I have fun with alliteration, so excuse me. Well, there were several reasons Nebuchadnezzar found out that taking young captives like these from lands he conquered proved useful to him. And one such usefulness was that they served as hostages making a revolt, you know, a rebellion far less likely by those that he had subjected. In this case, he was thinking that Judah, the southern province, would be far less likely to rebel against him, not pay their taxes or whatever, knowing that he had as hostages her finest young men, the ones who would carry on the kingly line the sons of the kings and the princes and the nobility. But that plan didn't work, did it? (laughs) Because we found out in our history lesson that they still rebelled. Those stiff-necked, stubborn Jewish people still rebelled. First of all, they rebelled under King Jehoiakim, and then again, later on, they rebelled under King Zedekiah. Now, if they hadn't rebelled, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have marched over two more times, two more exiles, and taken more people captive. If they had just obeyed and submitted and had listened to God, because he told them you'd only be there for 70 years and obey me, and if they listened to Jeremiah, none of that would have happened, but they didn't. Well, that's enough of that. Let's look now at the indoctrination program. And for this, I'll read verse 5 to 7. It says, And the king appointed them, this is the cute king's kids, (laughs) appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs, that's Ashpenaz again, gave names, changed their names. For he gave unto uh, Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. In the denationalization and the retraining program of his future leaders, Nebuchadnezzar had the Hebrew young people educated in the best that Babylon had to offer. And you know, the world does have a lot to offer as far as education. It does. We just have to be discerning, you know, what, what to sift out. But they, ha- they have a lot to offer. Um, they would have been taught natural history, law, administration, organization. I needed that class. Uh, business, finance, engineering, mathematics, economics, astronomy. Now, they were big into astronomy. What is stro- astronomy? astronomy is the scientific study of the motion of the universe. But they also would have been taught by the Chaldeans, we'll talk about them in a minute, astrology. Now, astrology is not a scientific study. Astrology is a belief system that teaches that the movements of the universe, the movements of the sun and the moon and the stars affect a person's personality and therefore that person's future. That's occultic, so don't be one of those that gets up and looks at your horoscope. That's from astrology. That's not a good thing, but they, they you know, could sift through all of this. Also, we know that Babylon had a pantheon of deities, so they would have been taught about all the gods and the goddesses, and they would have been taught all the ungodly mythology. They also had a tremendous knowledge of, of agriculture. Remember we talked about this last week when we looked at what Babylon looked like and we found out about the hanging gardens and just the beauty of the place. They knew a lot about agriculture. And they even had those hanging gardens air-conditioned. So um, they, were, they were way ahead of their time. They, they had uh, hydraulic pumps where they pumped water out of the Euphrates River. So these boys would have learned a lot about a- agriculture. And also the Babylonians were pe- perhaps the finest architects in the world at that time. And so they would have learned about architecture. Also, did you know that the Babylonians were experts in glass making? So maybe these boys even had craft classes, <laughs> where they learned how to blow, gl- gr- uh, blow grass, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> blow glass, um, and then this, this to me was interesting, I found out <clears throat> this week that they had a very sophisticated system of calculation and numeration that was based on not the number 10, our numerical system is based on the decimal system. Excuse me. Their numerical system was based on the number six. Ah, very interesting. (laughs) Because six is the number of man without God. Man with God is number seven. You know, numbers are very important in the Bible. Very important and very interesting. Their system was based on six. And if ever there was a place on planet Earth that represented man without God, it would be Babel, Babylon. Well, the reference there at the end of verse 4 somewhere um, to learning the tongue of the Chaldeans, that speaks of the most elite class of wise men in Babylon or magi. The Chaldeans were the elite of the magi. They were the most influential men in the entire kingdom. They were comparable to the Pharisees. They They were the priestly caste who actually trained the princes. then became kings. They, They trained all the royalty. They were diviners, they were magicians, they were educators of philosophy and mythology and astrology and linguistics and religion. They were big time into the study of the stars. Now you remember years later the magi who were studying the stars and they saw the star of Bethlehem that led them to Jerusalem to worship the true king. Those magi had been influenced by Daniel. Well, so they're big into the study of the stars and solving mysterious riddles and interpreting dreams and visions. Although, as we will see, they proved utterly worthless when it came to Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpreting it even knowing what it was, (laughs) in Daniel chapter 2, they were equally worthless when it came to interpreting that mysterious handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. Well, the Bible encyclopedia tells us that the learning of the Chaldeans would include the old languages of Babylon, which would be the Akkadian language. Now, when they changed their names, the names they, they changed them into are Akkadian names that was an ancient language and also they would have to learn the syriac language which is actually in the bible if you look at chapter 2 verse 4 look at 2 4 it says then spake the chaldeans to the king in what syriac that's another language that they would have had to learn and then it says in the bible encyclopedia that they spoke two lang- two dialects of the sumerians Remember the Sumer- Sumerians, first civilization ever? And then a certain knowledge of Kassite, which is allied to the Hittite language. I know that means nothing to you whatsoever, but just get this. They had to learn a lot of languages. And they, they spoke Hebrew, and they would learn Aramaic. I mean, they had to be bright young men, didn't they, to learn all this stuff. The Babylonian brainwashing academy was how long? It was a, a four-year degree condensed down to three years. It was a three-year school, and its purpose was to melt down and remold the captive royal youth into palace servants and administrators for the king himself. Well, not only were they separated from their families and from their culture and from their temple and everything that they had ever known, but they were also castrated. The Hebrew word for eunuch is saris, S-A-R-I-S. Now that word can refer to an official, a court official, a palace official, or it can refer to a eunuch. So commentators will go both ways on this. Well, they say, no, it doesn't mean they were made eunuchs. They were just court officials as in the case with Potiphar. Remember Potiphar back in Genesis? (laughs) Um, It says that he was a saris, as a R-I-S. And the King James translates it as a court official because he had a wife. But what if saris meant that he really was a eunuch? No wonder his wife went after Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting an ugly stare from (laughs) But... Now, I know, it would be really nice to think that Daniel and his friends and the other young Jewish captives were not made eunuchs. However, that doesn't really fit the situation for several reasons that I'm going to give you now. First of all, pagan kings like King Nebuchadnezzar did follow the practice of castrating those men who would serve in their palace who would have freedom throughout their palace. This was done so that they could be trusted to freely do that and not be tempted by the king's harem, you know? And also, it would be so that they would have their full focus on their duty to the king, that they wouldn't have a wife and a family of their own. Their full focus would be for the king. Second, making the royal seed of a conquered nation into eunuchs was another part of their humiliation by Nebuchadnezzar. This humiliated the conquering nation because he just you know, cut off their kingly line. There would be no descendants. Third, the castration of the royal sons of Judah was, and now here I'm finally going to talk about it, it was part of the twofold judgment that God made upon King Hezekiah, who, although he was one of Judah's few good kings, And he was a good king, yet he committed a grievous sin in his latter years. Be careful, pray that you finish well, because we can get comfortable in our old age and then make some big mistakes, which is what he did. After 14 years of a godly reign where he kicked out all the pagan idols and everything, just like Josiah, good reign, he fell into a, you remember this, a a fatal illness. He was not going to survive. He got really, really sick, and he was going to die. So he called in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and he begged Isaiah to beseech God to let him live longer, to prolong his life. Now, that was not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes we pray, like, oh, extend their life, Lord. That might not be his will. You know, when it's time to go, it's time to go. <laughs> he, he did. God did extend his life, but it turned out not to be a good thing for Hezekiah because then he gave birth to another son whose name was Manasseh, and he was one of the worst kings Israel had ever had. He undid everything good that his father had done. And just turned... I mean, he even had, was having the children thrown into the fire to Molech and just bad, bad guy. Also... King Hezekiah fell into a grievous sin himself. When Merodach Baladan, who was at that time just a king of a small little area called Babylonia, there wasn't the Neo Babylon Empire of Nebuchadnezzar yet. It was just a little small nothing. But this king, Merodach Baladan, sent some ambassadors to Hezekiah to congratulate him on his amazing recovery. And so these ambassadors went to see King Hezekiah and here's where he made a mistake. He showed off. He proudly took these young these uh, men and he showed them everything in his kingdom. You know, he boasted. He he showed them all the silver vessels and the gold vessels and all the treasures of his palace and he just showed off. So he dishonored God in two ways actually. He boasted in himself, and he failed to give the visitors the truth of the fact that God was the source of his health and his wealth and his success. Secondly, he sought the favor of a pagan king. He was actually doing this with the hope of having a future potential ally Show off to this little Babylonian king and maybe he'll help me fighting off the Assyrians. So he was coveting. He was not only boasting, but he was coveting the approval of the world, so to speak. So God pronounced judgment on King Hezekiah. Through the prophet Isaiah, he told the king that all the treasures that he and the kings that had gone before him had collected, not only in their palace, but in the temple, would be removed and that they would be carried where? To Babylon. Now this is a hundred years before Babylon is anything to speak of. He also told them that the young men of his seed, the kingly line, he said, would be taken away to the court of Babylon to serve the king of Babylon as eunuchs. Now the man under whom Daniel and the other Hebrew captives were placed was Ashpenaz, and he is called the prince of Nebuchadnezzar's eunuchs. In fulfillment of the prophetic judgment on Hezekiah for his boasting, the that uh, part of the fulfillment was that his future descendants would be castrated, and they would serve; they would be in uh, service to the king of Babylon, and that. Is why I really do believe they were emasculated. And that is why we never read of Daniel getting married. And you and I, we might think, well, that isn't very fair. Why should these young men suffer for the sins of another man? But you know what? That is the way of it. That is the way of it. Do we not all suffer because of Adam's sin? We do. We all inherit the Adamic sin nature. But if you don't think that's fair, well, here's something. If you want to think about fairness, is it fair that we can all be saved, everybody in the whole world can be saved, by way of one man's, the second Adam's, suffering and death? That's what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. You know, by by one man's sin, we're all doomed, but good news, by another man's suffering, we can all be saved from our sin. Well, the fact is that Jeremiah pointed out that the captivity of the young men in the first exile was in a way a special blessing. Jeremiah said it was a special blessing because they were actually spared from all the horrors that fell on Jerusalem in the next two exiles. Where were they? during the next two exiles, when Jerusalem was besieged and people were starving to death and being killed by the sword and uh, dying of all kinds of awful diseases because they couldn't get out of that city for 30 months. Where where was Daniel? He was in the palace of the king, safe and sound and even had the ear of the king. Nebuchadnezzar came to love Daniel. So they were spared from all that. Um, Now, would you also flip over real quickly to Isaiah 56 I want to show you something I found this week too Isaiah 56 and when you get there would you look sort of at the end of verse 3 Isaiah 56 end of verse 3 where it says neither let a eunuch say behold I am a dry tree you know I I never could have children I'm a dry tree or you could say this for a barren woman or a woman who never had children. Behold, I am a dry treat. Don't let the eunuch say that. Look at verse 4. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house and within mine walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And I thought, praise the Lord. Even though Daniel never had children, he has many sons and daughters through his witness, a lot of spiritual fruit. He has a place in God's palace, and he has a name that we're still talking about to this day that will never be cut off. Isn't that a blessing? That That is special. Well, Ashpenaz, the master of Nebuchadnezzar's eunuchs, was to look for the sons of royalty and nobility. He was to separate them from their families, from their culture, try to separate them from their god. He was then to separate them from any potential to have a family of their own. The kind of men that, that Nebuchadnezzar wanted were to be, here's a summation, good-looking, intelligent, endowed with understanding and discernment and competent to serve in the king's palace with poise and social grace. Is this not typical of the way the world evaluates? Doesn't the world look for the good-looking and the uh, intelligent? The world looks at the, the physical, the mental, and the social. You notice that nothing is mentioned here about the, you know looking for young men of integrity? or moral character, or virtue, or spirit, you know, spiritual qualities. Nothing's mentioned about that, is it? Because that's not the, what the world is looking for. They merely wanted the smartest, the best-looking, the, the most savvy, if it was today's world, the most uh, technologically sa- savvy. You know, they could really do their computers and all that kind of stuff. They wanted intelligent young men that they could brainwash. Well, the next part of Nebuchadnezzar's propaganda program was to give these young men preferential treatment. Not only was their academy of learning located right there, somewhere in that big, huge palace, um, but they were to be served from both the king's meat and the king's wine. They were to, to eat like kings themselves, like the king's kids, the king's children. Now, normally... Uh, when, those, uh, when people are taken captives to a hostile nation, they suffer greatly, and one of the main areas of their suffering is their lack of adequate food. Don't you basically think of somebody being in a dungeon, a dark dungeon, and what are they fed? One time a day, maybe they're fed bread and water, or some sorry-looking pottage, with green mold on it and worms in it or something. <laughs> but you don't think of them eating well captives at all. But these Hebrew sons of royalty were to be given a very substantial diet. They would eat like the king himself. Now they would have put before them things they had never eaten before. They would have barbecue sandwiches for the first time in their (laughs) life. They could have ham sandwiches, bacon and eggs, and Um, shrimp cocktail, all kinds of things that they had been forbidden to eat over there in Kansas. (laughs) And now all this spread, and you know it would be gourmet all the way, because this is King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the wealthiest guy on the earth at that time. Did you know that one of the most basic elements of brainwashing is to create a sense of obligation, to build dependency, on what you are providing, what you're supplying, because that's what gets the individual locked in. You know, so, so get them locked into what you're giving them. Nebuchadnezzar was going to seduce these young, growing men for three years, we're told, by feeding their appetites. He was going to get them hooked on the world's riches so that it would be practically impossible for them to want to even return to the plainness of their former lives in Judah where it was don't eat this, don't do that, you can't, you know, all the rules and regulations and now here they are where everything, you know, all, all the, is like a carnival in Babylon and all this amazing food put in front of them. And you know that his food and wine would be the very best. It is in the participation of the world's delicacies that corruption begins. Because that initial bite of that first barbecue sandwich tastes so good that it just demands another bite, right? One bite demands another. It's entering into the world's lifestyle that pollutes man more than the thinking style lifestyle is the most corrupting influence. You know when you join in with the world's lifestyle, what you're doing is basically admitting that you that you approve of the world's philosophy. When you do what the world does, when you have convinced yourself that it's okay to to uh shack up with somebody and go to the bars or whatever it is, do, do what the world is doing. You're basically a, a accepting their philosophy of life, the world's philosophy that there really maybe isn't a God or that he winks at this kind of stuff. You know, you're, by your lifestyle, you're showing what you really believe. Now, these young teenagers would not understand that because they, had not, they weren't skilled in the art of brainwashing. But what they would know is this, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar was banking on. They would know that they were always hungry. After all, they were teenage boys. (laughs) Teenage boys are always hungry. And the food that was set before them was unbelievable. And it was abundant. And it smelled delicious. And it was a temptation, wasn't it? Now, why is the food and the drink mentioned here, do you think? It is because it is what becomes the crux of the problem, as we're going to discuss in our next lesson. It's not taking them away from their culture. It's not indoctrinating them into uh, with their education, the world's education. It's not even changing their names, as we're going to see in a minute. The problem, the crux of the problem is concerning the food and the drink that's put before them. But that'll be for next time. All right, the end of verse 5 tells us the length of their training program. It was going to be three years long. It says nourishing them, three years. Now, the word nourishing doesn't just refer to their physical food. It applies to everything that would be involved in preparing these young men for service. It speaks of their their development as a whole person. It was going to be an intensive three-year program. School was not going to just start at 8.30 or 9 o'clock and end at 3 or 3.30. School was going to be ongoing all day long. And there were not going to be any breaks for Columbus Day or (laughs) um, Christmas break or Thanksgiving, no holiday, no summer vacations. It would be extensive, vigorous, accelerated. And only the brightest and only the most disciplined of students would make it to the highest class of wise men called the Chaldeans. Well, the final policy of Nebuchadnezzar in the indoctrination of the young captives to prepare them as loyal leaders to serve in his government was their assignment of new names. They were going to be given new names. Now, this was also part of the process of erasing their former attachment to their families, you know, their parents who had named them, to their families, to their nation, and to their god. Part of the process of assimilating them into the Babylonian culture. And this was not a unique practice because the habit of changing names of those who entered into a king's service was common. When Think of this. When Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, was lifted out of the prison to the palace to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh over Egypt, his name was changed from Joseph to what? Does anybody remember that long name? Zaph, yeah, Zaph, na, Zaph Nath, Zaph, Paniah, which meant savior of the world. Amazing. We studied that last year. Well, when Pharaoh Necho of Egypt subjugated Judah, the southern province, remember he changed the name of one of their kings, Eloi, Eloiakim, No, I'm sorry, Eliakim, to Jehoiakim. Big deal. I don't know why he did that, other than to show that he was king. And he had this sovereign prerogative to change anybody's name he wanted to, including their king. You know, Jesus was king. He is king, isn't he? King of kings. And to show he had the prerogative as king to do that, he changed names. Whose names did he change? Can you think of some of them? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament because it was actually him who changed the name of Abram to Abraham and his wife Sarai to Sarah. Uh, who else's name did he change? Jake. Jake well, let's go Old Testament. Jacob became Israel. All right, now go into the New Testament. Peter was Simon to begin with, and he changed his name to Peter. Saul to Paul, a couple of his disciples, well, one of his disciples, Levi, became Matthew. Right. That was to show that he was king and he had the prerogative to do that. Remember when we studied Moses? And his original name, according to Jewish tradition, was Joachim. I'm glad Pharaoh's daughter changed it because I wouldn't remember Joachim, (laughs) Moses. She named him, Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, because that means drawn from the water. And she drew him out of the water. Joachim meant established by God, and that he was. (laughs) And then there was a beautiful Hebrew woman named Hadassah. And when she married King Ahasuerus of the Medo-Persian Empire, her name was changed from Hadassah to what? Esther, right. Well, in verse verse 6, we are introduced to Daniel and his three friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who had been given God-honoring names by their Jewish parents. Now, in all of this, remember that there were other Jewish captives that were taken with these four guys um, and also enrolled in the Babylonian Brainwashing Academy, but these are the four, only four whose names we know. Why do you think that might be? It's probably because they're the only ones who took a stand and didn't compromise, took a stand for the Most High God and obeyed him through everything. And the others got brainwashed, we could say. Well, devout Jews had the common practice of incorporating at least one or both of God's two primary names into the names of their children. God's two primary names, Elohim and Yahweh or Jehovah. And what they would do is they would take from Elohim the E-L, L. And they would put E-L either on the beginning of their child's name, like Elisha lisha or they would put the L on the end of their child's name, like Ezekiel, Daniel, um, there's others too. can't think of any right <laughs> now. Joel, yeah, all right, that's good, good, Joel. There's a lot, you know, so that was what devout Jews would do. They'd give the name of Elohim in that little... Prefix E-L. Or they would use Jehovah or Yahweh. And therefore they would take the like Y A H, which translates in English J-A-H, J A H or J um, E or J E H, or I A-H. There's different forms because it depends on whether you say Jehovah or Yahweh. And they would put that on the beginning of their child's name, such as Jehu, or Jehoshaphat, or Yeshua. They'd put it either on the beginning of the name or they would put it on the end of the name where it would be like Isaiah, Hezekiah, um, Zechariah. Now, Elijah... He had the L El from Elohim, and he had the J for Jehovah. So he had a really great name, Elijah. Furthermore, then the, the part of the name um, that didn't refer directly to God was also generally significant in that it referred to God's character or God's power. Now, this is what we find. Obviously, these four guys had devout parents because all of their names honor God. Daniel's name, here's where you can look at this, okay? Daniel's name means God is my judge. Now, which, form of the, which name of God did the parents use? El, so it was Elohim. Elohim is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. They used Yah at the end of his name, so it's Jehovah is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is and his parents used Elohim, Mishael. Who is what God is is a rhetorical question that means basically the answer is no one. No one is what God is, what Elohim is. And then Azariah, his name is Jehovah is my helper, because again he had the I-A-H or the Yah. Jehovah is my helper. Now Ashpenaz, in verse 7, the prince of the eunuchs, was assigned the task of renaming these young men. Now, he may have renamed all the Jewish captives. We don't know. Maybe he didn't. Maybe they didn't have devout parents that gave them God-honoring names. So I, I just don't know. But it's interesting to put all four of the Hebrew meanings of Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah together. Because when you do that, it succinctly tells us what God meant to them and what God did for them in their lives spent in captivity in Babylon. And this is interesting. They lived for him. These four guys lived for him uncompromisingly because they knew ultimately that Nebuchadnezzar was not their judge. He wasn't the one they were going to stand before one day and give an account for their lives. They knew that Elohim is their judge, God is my judge, name of Daniel. They also knew that he is gracious because he certainly was in their lives, Hananiah. And no matter how many gods and goddesses were worshipped in Babylon, no matter what the Babylonians did to get them to bow to those gods, they understood that no god or goddess made of silver, bronze, gold, stone could even come close to what God is, who is, what Elohim is. All the others are just man-made nothing, statues. Well, that's the name of Mishael. And in all of their years as captive servant administrators in Babylon, Jehovah God proved himself to be their faithful helper through many, many difficult trials. So that at the end of their lives, they could all say together, Azariah, Jehovah is my helper. Elohim is judge. Jehovah is gracious. No other is what Elohim is, and Jehovah has been our helper always. Great, isn't it? Well, they're pa- pagan Babylonian names, and that's why throughout our study of Daniel, I don't want to use these names. I want to use their devout Jewish God-honoring names, but their pagan names were Belteshazzar, that was for Daniel, Shadrach for Hananiah, Meshach for Meshach, and Abednego um, for Azariah, they're not quite so easy to interpret and there's different interpretations but I give you what most commentators say and these names are translated from Akkadian language and that goes way way back so it's kind of difficult but Daniel's new name Belteshazzar meant Baal or Bel another name for Baal it was Bel. Bel protect his life Hananiah's new name Shadrach <clears throat> comes from two words Sudar and Aku Aku, A-K-U, was the name of their moon god. So his name translates, and Aku, by the way, was a shortened name for Marduk. And Marduk was another name for Nimrod. Right, you got that. So Shadrach means the command of Aku, the command of the moon god. Mishael's Babylonian assigned name was Meshach, which comes from Misha-Aku. And I'm sure that Ashpenaz thought he was really clever on this one. He probably patted himself on the back because he just did a little twist from Mishael to Meshach, and he goes from who is what Elohim is to who is what Aku is. And then the last one, uh, Abednego. That was the new name given to Azariah. Now, Abednego means servant of Nebo. Nebo, not Nemo, the clownfish, (laughs) Nebo was Baal's son. And there's other forms for Nebo, such as Nebo, Nabo, (laughs) Nego. And that's where Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar come, is from this god, Nebo, who was the son of Baal. So there's the, the difference in their names. Nebuchadnezzar was going to indoctrinate these young men into His world system. He was going to get them to forget or try to get them to forget and to forsake everything about their former lives, especially their God. But the good news was that Daniel and his three friends did not forget. The heathen king, he could change their environment. Think about you and I. We'd have our environment, you know, he, he could change their environment He could educate them with the knowledge of the smartest men. He could conjure up to teach them. He could tempt them with his richest delicacies. He could even change their names. But there was one thing he could not do when it came to these four, and that was change their hearts. I hope there's nothing nothing in this world that can change your heart. Purpose in our hearts to be true and uncompromising to God. That's what they did, and that's what we're going to look at next time. Their purposed hearts. Let's pray. Jehovah God, you are our judge. Indeed you are. May we keep that in mind forever and ever, our whole lives, that we're not going to stand before any man, anyone, Only you, one day, to give an account of the life that you have given to us. You are the ultimate judge. You are also gracious. We thank you that you are so, so gracious that you sent your only begotten Son to give his life for all of us. For whosoever shall believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. It's for everyone across the whole world Of all generations, that is so gracious that you took our place on that cross and died for our sins so that we never have to pay the wages of sin, which is death. And who is like you? No one. None. There is none like you. You are the eternal, self-sufficient God. And we praise you for that. There is none like you. And you are a good God, you are a holy God, you are a just God, but you are a loving God, a personal God who wants subjects who love you in return. Thank you for that truth, and thank you that you are our helper always, always. No matter what trials we go through, the ups and downs, the mountains, the valleys, you are always there to comfort us. Your spirit, your comforter lives within us if we know you And he does comfort us, help us, and he gives us that peace that passes understanding, no matter what is going on in this wicked Babylon of a world we live in. Oh, Father, help us not to compromise, but to grow brighter and brighter in this dark age in which we are living, and to shine for you always. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your blessed name. Amen. I bless you.